Well, good morning again, St. Paul's. Uh, great to have you with us, whether you're joining us online or in person. We're so pleased you're here. Everything in the world is about sex, except sex, which is about power. Oscar Wilde. The most common way that people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. Alice Walker. Power. We all have it to differing degrees, and most of us want more of it. Whether it's in our relationships, you want to have the power to no longer be single. Uh, you want to have the power to change the to no longer be single. Uh, you want to have the power to change the trajectory of your 20-something son's life. Or we want more power in our places of work. Power to stop this pandemic's devastating impact on your industry. Right? Power to uh, finally get that promotion. We all have power to differing degrees, and most of us want more of it. And in Western culture, at least, the more power you have means the more other people serve you, the more other people do your bidding. We're halfway through our teaching series, This is Jesus, looking at the most Googled man in the world through the lens of that first century writer, Mark. And last week, we read of Jesus's interaction with an affluent young adult, like uh, some of you here this morning, as uh, someone whose wealth would have given him power and influence. And the passage that John just read is also, it's about power, how Jesus uses the power that he has, and what are the implications uh, for those of us who want to follow him. Whether you're curious about Jesus, or maybe you're critical of the church, or you're already committed, this morning we're going to look at the purpose of power for Jesus and what it could mean for us in our daily lives. So if you want to pull up the passage on your phone, it's Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, or in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 46, you might find that helpful. The purpose of power for Jesus and for us. Let's remind ourselves of the contours of that encounter that Mark records. Jesus has been trying to train his leadership team of disciples for future where he will no longer be physically present with them because of his impending death. And so he's been teaching them about relationships, teaching them about finances, you know, the things a parent wants their child to know before they leave home. And we know that what he's been teaching them about relationships and finances, it's been tough to swallow. First verse, 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. And as they're making their way to the capital, the brothers, James and John, they spot their opportunity to talk to Jesus quietly on their own, and we just listened in. One of the wonderful things about young children is that they haven't yet developed the sophisticated filters that most adults have. They just say exactly what they, and probably you, are thinking. And a few years ago, when our daughters were a lot younger, we went to visit my husband's grandfather for his 100th birthday in Ottawa. And on the car ride to Ottawa, Tim and I were sitting in the front, of course, and chatting, and the girls were in the back seats. And I remarked to Tim how interesting it was that my grandmother had also died in her 100th year. 
and noting the longevity on both sides of our family. And I remember Tim kind of jokingly replied, he's like, oh no, this means we're going to be like married for 75 years, right? But anyway, our middle daughter, Kate, who would have been about five at the time, uh, had clearly been listening closely in the back seat. So that when we were at Grampy's birthday lunch, just an hour later, as she was slurping her soup, she piped up, Grampy, how old are you again? Oh no, Tim and I thought, like here it comes. And it was just like one of those train wrecks happening in slow motion, right? Grampy replied, well, Kate, today is my 100th birthday. And without even looking up for her soup, she calmly said, right. Well, it's a good thing we're having a party because you're going to die this year. Like no filter at all. James and John, grown men, speak their minds to Jesus seemingly with no filter. Verse 35. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow. Wow. I mean, I give it to James and John 10 out of 10 for chutzpah. I mean, I know we all want what they said, but rarely do we have the courage to say it out loud. Not so James and John. And you can almost hear the weariness in Jesus' voice. Yes, James. Yes, John. What is it you want me to do for you? And the two just lay it out there like a couple of five-year-olds. When you go viral, Jesus. When you overthrow the evil Romans, Jesus. When you get that big promotion and are finally sitting in the corner office, Jesus. We want to be your number two guys. To sit on your right hand and on your left. And literally five minutes before this conversation, Jesus had taken aside his disciples, including James and John, and this is what he had said for the third time. Verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, me, will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Five minutes ago, Jesus, I'm going to be tortured and killed. James and John, could we get upgrades? We like our steak medium rare. Is the cream organic? James and John request privileged places of authority in the Make Israel Great Again plan. They think Jesus is about to inaugurate. And in doing so, old Zebedee's boys seem to have missed almost entirely everything Jesus has said and done in the last three years. Now, to be fair to them, when Jesus had been giving these hard teachings on relationships and finances, which Tyler and Karen have looked at uh, the past two weeks, the writer Matthew records Peter, one of the inner three with James and John, blurting out what everyone was thinking. These are hard teachings, Jesus. We've left everything to follow you. When your mission's complete, is there going to be anything uh, left for us? And this is Jesus' reply, Matthew 19, 28. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, a Jewish title for the Messiah that Jesus frequently used to refer to himself, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And so to be fair to them, I think James and John's ears pricked up at the talk of thrones, right? And they assumed that Jesus meant literal ones, like right now in Jerusalem, when the occupying Romans were overthrown by the military revolution, Jesus was about to start, and they wanted to ensure that they had the best thrones. Controlling his disappointment and frustration with these two young men, Jesus gently rebukes them for their literalism and their, and their arrogance. And he speaks about the cup he must drink and the, the baptism he must undergo, subtly alluding to the violence and death that he knows awaits him in the capital. No problem, Jesus, James and John exclaim. We got this. We're right here with you. And not wanting to immediately burst their bubble, Jesus waits until four chapters later to tell them that they will actually abandon him at his darkest hour. But instead of dropping that bomb, he addresses their desire for more power and prestige. And notice that Mark records for us in verse 41 that James and John are not the only disciples enticed by visions of that corner office. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. The other disciples, they fume over the brothers' bid to outflank them in the upcoming cabinet reshuffle. They are no better. And before Jesus shows them how he's going to use his power, he holds up to them the conventions of the Gentile, Roman, authorities as a negative example. The occupying Romans used their power to coerce and control to maintain their dominance and their lifestyle. And here we come to the heart of the matter. The purpose of power for Jesus and what that means uh, in our daily lives for anyone who wants to follow him. Mark 10, verse 45, which many scholars see as the single most important line that Mark ever recorded Jesus saying. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, there's that messianic title again, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As I said, in most cultures, the more power you have, the more people serve you. That's how you know you have power in the first place. And it's why we don't like that feeling of powerlessness. But Jesus is turning this understanding of power on its head. And he explicitly links his quite shocking understanding of the purpose of power to serve others. He links it to his own impending death. And Jesus' mention of a ransom well, it indicates that his death is going to be more than just a martyr's tragic protest against an unjust system. The word in question, ransom, litron in the original Greek, if you want to sound fancy, it indicates that his death on the cross, it does something. It, it accomplishes something tangible. A ransom is paid to free you from something or someone. Jesus, who left the worship of throngs of angels and the majesty and wonder of life with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus, he left all that power and beauty behind to become human, to suffer, to die. 
And Jesus used the power that he had as God in the flesh to serve, to give his life as a ransom so that we could be free. Let me illustrate. Let me illustrate how Jesus both used his power and what this power with a purpose, what it does for us. Let me illustrate. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225, it crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport and there was only one survivor, a four-year-old girl from Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when rescuers found Cecilia, they didn't believe she'd been on the plane. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was little Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as that plane was falling, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around Cecilia and wouldn't let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Neither the tragedy nor the disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth. Paula gave up her life for her daughter to live. On the cross, Jesus is wrapping his arms around each of us, shielding us from the ultimate consequences of our sin, of our consistently day in and day out destructive choices, yours and mine. Jesus takes in his own body all the tragedy and the disaster, the fall and the flames of our lives, of our world, and he dies under its weight so that we get to walk free from the wreckage on the highway. On the cross, we have God, who is in the ultimate place of power and authority. We have God in Christ reversing places with us. On the cross, all the values of the world are turned up on their heads. Jesus wins through losing. He achieves power through service, and he comes to greatness and wealth by giving it all away. And not only does Jesus use his power to serve us, the freedom from the ultimate consequences of sin that we receive, what's incredible is it then gives us power, it gives you and me power, to serve others. Writer Brennan Manning says that only sacrificial love can move us to change. Power affects behavior, he writes, but only love affects the heart. And nothing on earth so moves the heart as suffering love. We can only live a life of reversed values in this city where the first shall be last and the last shall be first because Jesus has put us where he deserves to be, before the throne of God, beloved, accepted, cherished by God. And that great exchange of the cross that we talked about the first week of our series, God putting God's self where we deserve to be, when we let that suffering love shape our hearts, it creates a different kind of person who leads a different kind of life. 
And it's, it's a daily life where we no longer need to have our identity and hope and purpose justified through status or money or race. We can accept being rejected by our culture because we're accepted by God. And if this world, like if this is all there really is, then why would you work against injustice if it meant losing your reputation or your job? I wouldn't. But because Jesus used his power to serve us on the cross, Christians can, for example, we can look at our money as something to give away, to serve God's purposes of justice and hope for all, because we don't have to fear God's abandonment. Jesus is saying if you want to have power to shape other people's lives for the better, the way to gain that influence is to be so sacrificially loving that people can't imagine their lives without you. I am James and John. I want God to do for me anything I ask. I would love to have the power to control God. Wouldn't you? Jesus shows us not only the divine purpose for power, to serve, but also gives us power with a purpose. His suffering love on the cross can shape my heart and it can shape yours so that we can serve others with love and humility. What an impact that would have in your friendships. Imagine what a gift that would be in your marriage. What an impact is a downtown church in this city we could have if our hearts are shaped like that. And if we want that kind of power, why don't we pray for it? Just where you're seated, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your son came to serve and not to be served. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus puts us where he deserves to be, before your throne, loved and cherished. Soften our hearts. Shape our wills and minds that this suffering love would become in our lives a power with a purpose to serve and not to be served. Amen.